For our scripture reading this morning, we turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. And we'll begin reading with verse 8. Verse 8. Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil, or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil, and his lips, that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good. But and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water, the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. And this morning we consider the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 15. What dost thou understand by the words he suffered? That he, all the time that he lived on earth, but especially at the end of his life, sustained in body and soul the wrath of God against the sins of all mankind, 
that soul by his passion as the only propitiatory sacrifice, he might redeem our body and soul from everlasting damnation and obtain for us the favor of God, righteousness, and eternal life. Why did he suffer under Pontius Pilate as judge? That he, being innocent and yet condemned by a temporal judge, might thereby free us from the severe judgment of God to which we were exposed. Is there anything more in his being crucified than if he had died some other death? Yes, there is, for thereby I am assured that he took on him the curse which lay upon me, for the death of the cross was accursed of God. <clears throat> Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, the subject of the Heidelberg Catechism here is the lifelong suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that as a part of one of the stages of, we might say, the state of humiliation. And this is significant because that word suffering is a good summary of the entire life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ on earth. And that one word really summarizes the true reality of his death even. In fact, it's the one word that Jesus himself uses to summarize his life and work in this world. You may recall the incident that is recorded in Luke chapter 24, where on the Sunday morning in which Jesus arose from the dead, there are two travelers traveling from Jerusalem where they celebrated the Passover. And during that celebration, they witnessed as believing disciples in our Lord Jesus Christ, His arrest and then trial. They witnessed the reality that people who had only a week earlier shouted to Jesus as he came down from the mount, Hosanna, thou son of David. A week later, cry out, crucify him. And were complicit in the condemnation of Jesus by both their rulers and then Pontius Pilate. They witnessed the execution of Jesus on the cross, his death, and witnessed his being buried. And so as they travel after that astounding weekend to them, back to their home in Emmaus, they are sad, their countenance droopy. It is easy to see by any passerby that they are overwhelmed with grief. And the risen Jesus suddenly appears and joins them as they walk along. And he asks them why they are so sad, and they, they tell him. 
And Jesus' response is both shocking and wonderfully amazing. His response is, you fools, and slow to understand. And then he asks them a question. Should it not be that the Christ should suffer? Should it not be that he who you yourself admit hoped would be the Messiah, the Christ, and are now sad because it seems as if he's not? Why would you be amazed and astounded that he should suffer? That one word, which is the same word we use for the suffering of Christ, the passion, the passion. And then he went in and showed them from the Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures, how they all prophesied of this great thing, this astounding thing, this thing that if one does not understand it properly is severely saddened. It is an essential aspect of our faith is now taught here in this Lord's Day. Let's consider again the Savior's humiliation the state of humiliation and now his suffering. We'll notice in the first place the reality of that, then the cause, and finally the significance. When the Son of God came to earth and took our human nature unto himself, became a man, he entered into a particular life, a life of suffering. A life, therefore, of humiliation. We saw last week that what's being taught here in the Catechism, as it explains the Apostles' Creed, is the two great states of Jesus' entire life as the incarnate Son of God. There is, first of all, the state of humiliation, and then the state of exaltation, and we saw last week that that's taught, especially in Philippians 2, verses 8 and 9. And being found in a fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God hath also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. And we saw last week that that began with his incarnation. And now we see that a great aspect of that humiliation is his suffering. The word for suffering that's used in the Scriptures is the word paschos, which we translate as the passion, the passion. And even now, the time of Christ's passion is being celebrated and being memor uh, memorialized even in all of Christendom. But that word especially emphasizes that this is a lifelong experience of Jesus. That word means to experience, to endure, to undergo. And the idea is he en endures, he undergoes that, he experiences it his whole life. His whole life is summarized under that one word, suffering. Suffering. 
In other words, it's not something he simply endured at the end of his life, which when many consider what they call the Passion Week, is often forgotten, as if this is somehow now the first time that Jesus is suffering. That's not the Reformed faith, that's not what the Scriptures teach. And that's even evident when you consider the one great thing that is attached to the suffering of Jesus, which is his suffering under Pontius Pilate. It is significant for this doctrine that the Apostles' Creed attaches that word suffering to one particular event, which is his suffering under Pontius Pilate. But it's also clear by what follows. He suffered and died. He entered into the grave. That that suffering is intended to capture more than what happened under Pontius Pilate, but indeed his death also. And then if one looks at the Scriptures and considers it, and considers especially what the Catechism says here, that it was his whole life long, that he, all the time that he lived on earth, suffered. And that's evident if you simply look at what happened under Pontius Pilate. If you actually look at that, that's quite brief. The whole suffering under Pontius Pilate is basically that which occurs in about 24 hours. 24 hours, one day. No one would say Jesus suffered for only one day. And then if you even look at Pontius Pilate himself, a rather insignificant figure all by himself, he's not even the ruler of the Romans. He represents them. That's the significance of that being attached to his suffering, as we're going to see. But a man of himself really of no account. It's just that he has authority over Jesus and this suffering under Pontius Pilate is going to explain much about the suffering of Jesus itself, even that of all his life, as well as the form of death, which also is suffering. We did consider last week already that this suffering belongs to his life of humiliation, although the life of humiliation is more than simply his suffering, but the two are virtually identical. That's what's being brought out here. When we talk about the state of humiliation, it basically covers the same exact thing that his life of suffering does, teaching us much about the nature of his humiliation as well as the nature of his suffering. But we noted that that began with his incarnation. All the time that he lived on earth. Well, when does that begin? That begins when he's born. When he's born. Now, we saw last time that the incarnation itself, the fact that Jesus Christ takes human nature, is not itself suffering, is not itself humiliation. And that's evident if you consider that the incarnation is permanent. It's not temporary, it's permanent. Jesus will be forever united to us in His flesh. Took to Himself a human nature forever. But the state of humiliation is only during His lifetime on earth. It is brief, it is temporary. 
comparison to the incarnation. So the incarnation itself can't be his humiliation or a form of suffering. So if you search the scriptures and the creeds, you will discover that what's humiliating about it, what was the suffering of it, is that he comes in the likeness of sinful flesh. That is, he takes human flesh that is not in the state of perfection, like as Adam and Eve had, but he takes human flesh that's under God's curse. Human flesh, therefore, that is mortal, subject to death and the curse of God. He takes human flesh that is weakened, not glorified. The human flesh that Jesus has now is very much different as far as quality is concerned than that which He took. That belongs to His exaltation. It's glorified. But what He takes, what He begins with is humble flesh. That belongs to the parents that He has. Belonging to that humiliation and thus the suffering of His birth is that He is born. He takes the flesh of a mother who is not perfect, as Rome maintains, but sinful. The humiliation and thus the suffering of Jesus in His incarnation is that He must be born and carried by sinful parents, including His mother. He must be raised by them. You can be certain that both of them sinned in the raising of Jesus. That He was witness to their sins. It adds to His suffering. You even see that in the incident that's recorded prior to His public ministry. When at the age of 12, He enters the temple and is going about His father's business. And His mother appears, His parents, it appears, have forgotten all about that. That already in their sinful nature, they've sort of taken the benefit and the blessedness of Jesus to themselves, have forgotten about the work that He has to do, even hinder that work that belongs to His suffering. Belonging to that suffering is that He has siblings who do not believe Him. And you can be certain, therefore, mocked Him and ridiculed Him, treated Him like other brothers treated godly and unrighteous brothers, like David's brothers treated him. And that's going to continue, we read in the Scriptures, all the way up until Jesus dies. His own family, own brethren, among those who likely cried, crucify him. We disown him as a brother. We disown him as the Messiah and the Christ. Now, Again, like much of Jesus' work and labor, it comes to the foreground, it comes to prominence in His baptism and public ministry. And that's when we really begin to first see the suffering and the humiliation of Jesus Christ. You see that even in His own baptism. Even John himself is astounded by that. John, who says, I'm not worthy to untie His shoes or latch them up. I who must decrease and He who must increase... I'm to baptize you? You, the sinless one? And Jesus says, baptize me. That all by itself indicates something. It indicates the source of his suffering, the cause of his suffering. Notice too, 
that all his suffering in his public ministry is really bracketed by Satan. Oh yes, the source, the source of all his suffering goes back to God. It's related to God's wrath. But that suffering is afflicted upon him. The means, the instrument by which that suffering comes is Satan. And thus his public ministry begins by a severe trial under Satan. That belongs to his suffering. Imagine Jesus, who is the Son of God, who created Satan. He formed him. He fashioned him. He formed and fashioned him, of course, as a glorious, perfect creature with amazing powers and gifts. That creature fallen in pride and jealousy now tempts him, the Creator, the everlasting God. And that indicates now the nature that Jesus took. A human nature subject to the very temptations of Satan. The Scriptures emphasize that. He himself was tempted. Even tempted. That, that suffering. Look at those sufferings sometime. Look at those temptations. The suffering of hunger. When you know that it is within your power to make all the food that you need and want. To turn even stones to bread. He could have done that. To suffer from Him who is the Prince of this world at that moment, who offers Him all the kingdoms and all the glory and all the riches and all the honor of the entire world, if only He will subject Himself to that fallen beast. And then the threat implied, of course, that if you don't, I will see that you suffer. I will see that your life is the most miserable life that anyone lived on this earth. Which is exactly what happened. You must see behind all the sufferings that Jesus endures in all His life. You must see behind them the snarling, spiteful tempter and accuser, Satan. Happens at the end of his life too. Satan takes a different form. Satan comes through his own disciples. Comes, for example, through Peter. He tells the disciples, I must suffer and die. Peter says, no, you don't. Nope. Be it far from thee, Lord. That's not going to happen. We're going to see it doesn't happen. We're going to pull out our weapons. We're going to defend you. Sounded all pious. Sounded all wonderful. The great things we'll do for our Lord Jesus Christ. Admirable. Jesus saw right through it. Get thee behind me, Satan. He saw Satan there in those words of Peter. Adding to the suffering of Jesus Christ in His life is the attitude, the unbelieving attitude and rejection even of His own. We don't often do justice to that. But consider the suffering there. One is that Jesus makes Himself so plain that there is no excuse. Who He is and what He is is so plain, so obvious. 
He says he speaks in parables to show as plain as it could possibly be what the kingdom is, what the gospel is, to show that he's a Christ. He demonstrates it time and time again in a way that you just scratch your head and you say, how could everybody be so blind? But they are. It adds to his suffering. Not just that they mocked and ridiculed, but they they reject him as their Savior. They reject him as their Messiah. They reject him as the son of David, their king. And then, adding to the suffering, is there's, there's, there's times where they do want him. That must have been a great for temptation to Jesus. We do want you as our king, our earthly king. We would love to have you as our king to supply all our earthly bread. We'll cry, loud hosannas, thou son of David, as long as you sit on a throne, a physical throne in Jerusalem, and you get rid of those dreaded Romans. We would love to have you as our king. That kind of king. But not a spiritual king. We, we really don't want deliverance from our sin. We don't, we don't want anyone who's going to expose our sin to declare our depravity and our ungodliness and wickedness, who's going to tell us that we have to believe and repent. We're not, we're not really interested in that. And then the leaders, who should have been building the temple of God, the leaders, who should have been building on the foundation of the Christ, reject Him. They're not, that's not the kind of building we want either. We, we really rather like Herod's building. We, we like that kind of temple. That makes us something in the eyes of the world. We, we don't, we don't want a church, a church building. We don't want a spiritual edifice built on, on him. He condemns us. He sees through us. He sees our, our jealousy. He sees our greed. He sees our adultery. He, he sees who we are. We don't want that. We'll lose the people. And then, of course, all of that leads to his suffering under Pilate. Catechism says, especially at the end of his life, we ought to do justice to that. There is a reason why we consider the Passion Week. There is a reason why this does become the focus, as long as we understand and do not forget that he suffered his whole life. And that's an important part of the Gospel. But when you do look at the end of his life, you see how it's increasing. There's a development in this suffering. You see that in the garden where amazingly he's sweating blood, where he's reduced to a crawling on the ground, as he says in his own words, like a worm. Where on the one hand, he shows he is mighty God when they come to arrest him and he makes them all fall backwards with simply saying, I am. And then has to be taken prisoner who is the one who comes to free us from our bondage. And when you look at the trials, the humiliation of the trial by the Jewish leaders who convict him because he made himself equal with God. They convict him for being who he is. Suffering of unbelief, mockery and ridicule. But it's more than that. It's more than the physical abuse, the mockery, the nakedness, the injustice of it all. The suffering under Pilate is brought out because that's what shows, even by the weak and sinful justice of the world, 
that he was indeed innocent personally. That he was not suffering because he himself sinned or was a sinner. The importance of the suffering under Pontius Pilate is that he himself was suffering though he was an innocent man. That's important to the significance and the cause of his suffering. The importance of his suffering under Pilate is it shows that ultimately he is suffering not because of Pilate, but because of God. That he's suffering due to his state, his legal status, as we said before, under God. You see, what Pilate shows, and you have to consider this, believing who God is. God is a just God who never punishes the innocent. God is a just God who always rewards the good and does good to the good, never evil. God is the God who is filled with wrath and anger only against the sinful. And that's who God is. That's what God is. It's unjust. It would be evil. It would be sinful for God to humiliate, for God to inflict the kind of suffering that Jesus endured upon the innocent. And under Pilate, we see that he's innocent. Even Pilate said so. Even Pilate, this unjust, imperfect, sinful, wicked ruler, can see can see that he's delivered because of jealousy, delivered because of the self-vain glory of the Jewish leaders and other such things, and declares him so, and yet condemns him anyway, which adds to his humiliation. And then there's the crucifixion, which even the catechism itself brings out, is there anything more to be as crucified than if he had died some other death? And the answer is yes. The importance of being convicted under Pilate is why he suffers on the cross, that is, a tree. Thus fulfilling the word of God way back in the beginning in Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone that hangeth upon a tree. Showing thereby that now this relationship of his suffering and his death is related to the curse of God. That what explains what's going on is he's under God's curse. That's what shows up at the cross. And, and we have to remember there too. What is especially significant of the cross and His crucifixion is not again the pain. Not the suffering of the agony, although we shouldn't overlook that. But don't forget, millions were likely crucified under the Romans. They crucified thousands upon thousands upon thousands on crosses. But none of them suffered like our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Well, in part, it has to do with the fact that he who suffers there on the cross is the Son of God. But also, when you look at the suffering itself, it's not the pain, the agony of it. It's the humiliation of it. It belongs to his suffering that he who is the Son of God is cursed by God. That he who is the most glorious of all, who lives in heaven, he who is God's own beloved Son, who has given everything, who has everything, 
has it all taken away and is sitting there on a cross as an excommunicated man, as a man who doesn't belong on the earth, as a man who's rejected and hated by all, who's mocked and ridiculed, naked, stripped naked. It's all part of his humiliation. Now that brings us again We'll consider this more under his death, even his descent into hell. But when you ask, why is this? What's the cause of all this? You have to put it all together. And the answer is because he voluntarily took unto himself the sins of all his people. That though he himself is the Son of God is innocent, he is a sinner in this sense. That he made himself a sinner. He took sins that he didn't commit, for which he was not liable, and said, I am now liable for these. I am responsible for these. I take these sins upon myself and upon my shoulders, and I will bear what's due for them. And understand now, in so doing, he shows that what we deserve for sin, what sin demands, is not simply suffering at the end of life. What it deserves and what sin ought to have inflicted upon it is not simply something that happens after our life or the fact that we die, but that all of life, all of the suffering, all of the pain, all of the tears, all of the sorrow, all the rejection, all of it is due to sin. Take sin away, and there is no more suffering. And that's what his lifelong suffering emphasizes. The death of little baby children, even in the womb of mothers, is because of sin. The trials that a young mother goes through, the pain and suffering of birth itself, and rearing a little one, and the exhausting labor the endless feedings and changing of diapers and chasing them down, fixing their wounds, comforting their troubled souls, all comes down to sin. That's the cause of all this. That Jesus Himself took that upon Himself. And now, let's be more specific, that He was sustaining in body and soul, notice, the wrath of God. The wrath of God is what He's enduring. That's why this is pointed out so emphatically. We, we become dull to sin even in our regenerated state. We don't think much of sin. We don't see sin really for what it is, what it deserves. And if you really want to know that and see that, study the life of Jesus and see the suffering. From the moment He's born, see Him in the grave, see all of it, and see this is what you deserve. This is what you deserve. This is what I deserve. This is what the wrath of God is. The wrath of God just isn't something that's poured out upon the unbelieving and ungodly in hell. It's not something that we see and we experience just simply around death. And when we see death, 
but it's in everything. It's infused in all of human life. And that's what Jesus shows here. Now amazingly, the Catechism says that He was enduring body and soul, sustaining. <laughs> Even that word's important, sustaining. He sustained. That shows why He must be the Son of God. No human being can sustain these sins. You see that already in the beginning of His ministry when He's tempted by Satan. Which human being could sustain that? That's, that's what Satan himself realizes. This is no ordinary man. Now he knew that from a certain viewpoint, but he took notice of that. Every human being would have fallen, not been able to sustain the wrath of God and that suffering and those temptations Christ did. But notice, against the sins of all mankind, and we need to speak about that, but that cannot be, and in fact would gut the entire gospel if the sins of all mankind referred to every single human being. Let's understand what that means. If you're going to interpret the sins of all mankind to be all men, then what you must say is that Jesus Christ endured the wrath of God for the sins of Pontius Pilate, for the sins of Judas Iscariot, for the sins of all the ungodly and all the wicked who will be in hell. Really. So, in the end, what we're saying is that Jesus can indeed die for your sins and suffer the wrath of God for your sins, but you can still go to hell? Because that's what that means. What that means then is Jesus really didn't do anything. He suffered all this wrath of God, suffered all the wrath of God for all the sins of every single human being, but human beings are still going to suffer the wrath of God in hell? Well, how can that be if Jesus already suffered it? That must mean then that what really saves me from the wrath of God is not Jesus and His suffering, but me, something I do, some choice I make some decision that belongs to me. And that's why the Christian faith and the Reformed faith have always consistently rejected that explanation. And you can go all the way back to the original and ancient fathers and find that to be true. Every Reformer rejected that position. The Catechism itself rejects that explanation and sees it just like as what even John the Baptist himself said at Jesus' baptism, that he comes for the sins of the whole world. What's it talking about there? And the answer is that when Jesus comes, he comes as a universal Savior, so that in the first place, he dies for the sins of all manner of men, all kinds of men, not just male men, but females. He comes for the Sins and he endures the wrath of God against sins not only of rich and wealthy, but poor and impoverished. Not only the sins of the educated, but the uneducated. Not only the sins of Jews, but the sins of Gentiles. And that phrase also amazingly means this, that those for whom Jesus died are the real and true mankind. They will be the true and real and only mankind 
into all eternity. In the new creation, the new heavens and earth, there will only be those human beings living and alive eternally and everlastingly, those whom Jesus suffered the wrath of God for those sins and their sins only. And the Catechism itself brings this out when it goes on to explain what he was doing. What sustaining that wrath of God actually means. First of all, it calls it the only propitiatory sacrifice. That is, the only sacrifice that was in the place of others and actually was a substitute was in the place of another that actually accomplished what sacrifices are supposed to accomplish. That is, the appeasing of the wrath of God. It's saying there that those for whom Christ sustained God's wrath have no more wrath of God against their sins. That's what it means. It says about that enduring that He redeemed body and soul from everlasting damnation. All those for whom Christ suffered the wrath of God and sustained that wrath of God, not only at the end of His life, but His whole life, they are redeemed. He redeems them. And He redeems them body and soul. And redeems them from, notice, everlasting damnation the official Reformed position of the creeds, indeed of the Heidelberg Catechism, is that all those for whom Christ died and sustained the wrath of God are redeemed from everlasting damnation. Not just that He made it possible. Made it a possibility as long as they do something now. That's why our fathers always said there's no blessing and curse of God That doesn't come, as it were, through the cross. All blessings of God are on the basis of the cross, and all cursing of God is related to that. Because there on the cross, He died the accursed death. So that all those, no matter their suffering, no matter their sins, no matter their troubles and afflictions, The suffering of God has been exhausted. The suffering of the Son of God has been exhausted under the wrath of God for them. And all for whom He did not die, no matter how wonderful is their life, no matter how rich they are, no matter their state, whether it be a king and a prince, a ruler like Pontius Pilate, they are cursed. Because the wrath of God for their sins remains. This explains the severity of Christ's humiliation and His suffering, we have to understand that too. When the Catechism talks about Him suffering the sins of the whole world, the idea is He suffered an innumerable number of sins. All of our sins add them up. He suffered the wrath of God for all of them. That explains the severity of His suffering. Why it's lifelong. We could go on and say it's related also to the fact that the one who suffers is the Son of God. And so he suffers like no human being other than him can suffer. Because he who suffers is God's own beloved Son. He who lives in the bosom of the Father. It's his own Father who's afflicting this wrath upon him, this suffering. We know something of that. That when pain and trouble, when there's rejection, 
by one who's close to us, the more it hurts. The more it hurts. The more it adds to our suffering. Well, consider Jesus. And don't forget now, when you go to the cross, you see how bad was this suffering. You see it intensify until finally there's that mysterious cry, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's his suffering. That's the severity of his suffering. Now the significance, it's there of course when it says he might redeem us and obtain for us the favor of God, righteousness, and eternal life. The point is that all of this is for our assurance. And this is why the gospel of a universal suffering of Jesus for all men, universalism, is so wicked and evil, so destructive to the church because it destroys your assurance. Then there can be no assurance that my sins are actually paid for, no assurance that they're atoned, no assurance of eternal life, everlasting hope, all these things that the catechism lists. The reason they're listed here is so that we are assured of them. If this is what actually happened, and this is the actual explanation of it, then what that means is I am assured that my body and soul is redeemed and redeemed from eternal damnation. I am assured that I have the favor of God. That word favor there is the grace of God. I have God's favor and grace. I have His righteousness. I have eternal life. And contrary to everything else that it might seem to be like, I'm assured of that. I'm assured that He sustained the wrath of God against all of my sins so I don't have to sustain it. Not one drop. You say, well, what do you need that for? And the answer is, because I'm still a sinner. And I still live in a world of sin. We still have that very flesh that Jesus himself took upon himself. And we must see that all of our suffering is a testimony to that. All of it. All of it really is a testimony of what we deserve. Now the benefit of all this is it shows us there's no curse of God in that. One of the things of which I'm assured is no matter how hard my life is, no matter how great my suffering, there is no wrath of God. No punishing wrath. No wrath that exacts from me the penalty for my sin. It's all been paid for. That's all been taken care of. Which means that the nature of all my suffering changes. What it means is it's for my good. It's for my benefit. We need this assurance exactly because we sin and we sin against God. It's also what God even uses to remind us of the horror of our sin. This is why time and time again, really, partly at least why, the Apostle always says we glory in the suffering of Christ. This is really what makes Christ so lovely for us. And why, too, we need this assurance? Because if we believe in Christ and follow after Him and live in righteousness, then we will endure suffering for Christ's sake. And that, too, we glory in. We don't try to avoid it. But in love and deference to our Savior and thanksgiving to Him for what He has done, we say, I endure it. I endure as a good shoulder, soldier. I'm not now by enduring it paying for my sins. That's been taken care of. But I do it because I love and I'm thankful for my Savior. And you see, that takes all the suffering of life, all the troubles of life, all the sorrows of life, even the doubts that we have, and turns them to our good and to our profit. That's that favor and grace of God again. 
And it's the power, therefore, even to live a new and holy life before Him. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our God and Father in heaven, we thank Thee for our Lord Jesus Christ who suffered. We are humbled once again that our God has taken upon Himself the wrath that we deserve and paid it in full, atoned for us who belong to Him. Give us faith there to believe in Him, to have complete assurance, that assurance that is faith, that He has done this in His great love, in His great attitude of favor and grace toward us, His children. Give us strength to believe and never to doubt. This Thy Word, in Jesus' name we pray, Amen.